Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the latest episode of When Sky Invented Football, the sometimes not so beautiful game viewed for the wrong end of a rolled up fanzine. The fanzine in question being the one I used to write from 1985 to 1989 called Off the Ball. I was writing that in an era when football hooliganism was rife, but I was fond of referring to the hooligans in the boardroom who wanted to destroy some of what I regarded as the good things in football, or at least were careless about it, the sense of community, its local roots, for their own selfish ends. Prime example, the so-called Big Five as they were then. Manchester United, Spurs, Arsenal, Liverpool and Everton, who were the architects of a so-called Super League that week by week threatened to break away from the long-established Football League with the agreement, incredible as it seemed to me then and now, of the Football Association. They tried dressing it up by talking about improving facilities for fans and developing more opportunities for young English players. But this was all about money. Everyone knew that the era of satellite telly was coming, even if they didn't quite know how it would look. For the architects of this new competition, it wasn't enough that the cake was about to get immeasurably bigger. They wanted larger slices too to themselves, and so they created, literally, a league of their own, where the goodies are shared just 20 ways instead of 92. A point of comparison, in the period 1980-89, to 89, despite Liverpool's dominance, 13 different clubs finished in the top four of English football. In the last decade, just seven clubs finished in the top four. Not quite a monopoly, but something approaching a closed shop. And as each year goes by, the inequality between rich and poor in football grows ever greater. Now in this age of coronavirus, there is another consequence of these debates from three or more decades ago. The decision to halt League Two football at a time when its member clubs are getting zero income through the gate for the Premier League literally isn't their problem. The football family, more like a family at war, a war in which only one side has tanks and guns. OK, maybe I exaggerate, but you get the point. I want to speak to some of this with Carol Shanahan. Carol is co-chair at League Two Port Vale. Hi, Carol. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Pleased to be here. Carol, I just want to talk about your predicament at the moment before we address the wider issues in football that, that somehow obsess me. But what is it like for Port Vale now that the decision has been taken to halt League Two and to be co-chair of a club that has no immediate prospect of getting fans through the gate? In some ways, it was a bit of a relief. I mean, it was horrible, don't get me wrong. It's um, because um, football's all about hope and it's all about hope till the very last minute. I mean, how many times has somebody won a league or been relegated in, in the final half of the final game or, you know, and and you do do your campaign over every single match. So for it to be stopped with nine matches to go um, and, you know, we were teetering on the bottom of the um the playoffs position. So the week before we'd been in the playoffs um, and we just got two home games and a fantastic home record. So we probably would have been the next week, but this week we happened to be, um, you know, just below it in eighth place. So we've been um, spending the last eight or nine weeks 
keeping our players ready. Um, we've had them quarantined. Um, they've had their own training schedule to do. This has been monitored. Um, we've had um, sessions with a, uh, like a psychologist, but a personal development sort of um, a coach to work with them because we wanted to keep their their mind ready, their headspace um, ready to just go and start. And and you never knew, you know, you kept getting told a little bit this, it'll be that time, it'll be the next time. And I think when we'd made the decision, and it wasn't for this reason at all, but one of the consequences was that we thought, well, at least we know now. At least, you know, I've been speaking to all of our players to say thank you for this year and to wish them a good summer. Um, and we've been able to do that. We've been able to publish our retained list and and actually get on with planning next season um, because I felt that there were so many dependencies on other leagues before us. And, you know, you say about the Premier League, well, there's the Championship, it's you know, a very similar situation. And then you've got League One, who are all at war at the moment. Um, so we just we were just at the bottom of that pyramid and i think in some ways it's a little bit of a relief you know a few days into it at the same time though you are a business that has zero income through the gate as a percentage of your total income and obviously i've got to recognize the fact that for all i've said in that introduction the premier league does give you some money as part of its broadcasting revenues the football league obviously of which you are a member gives you some revenue as well from its broadcasting pot uh, overall as a percentage of your income how much does gate money and the associated income such as uh, food and drink sales and merchandise how much does that account for i don't have a percentage this is our first season owning the club kevin and i bought it in may kevin your husband yeah Yes, yeah. And so I don't have a, an exact percentage of, of how much is that. I mean, for a League Two club, we have a phenomenal following. We have 4,000 season ticket holders, which is, is huge um, you know, compared to a lot. I've been to clubs this year where um, chairman have said to me, you know, I'd, I'd kill to get past 1,800 or 1,200 or what have you. So we've got 4,000 um, and we get gates of over 5,000. Um, and that's more or less our fans um, without the away fans coming. And they are a significant part of our income. And by the time you add on the kiosks and, you know, the, the sales in the shop and, and everything that adds to it. and Everything in our club now goes into the club. In every penny that um, comes in through through a till comes into the club. Um, so whether it is hospitality, uh, a non-match day hospitality, anything that's on the site comes into the club. And so we have just begun to, well, we had just begun to make a bit of a profit. We, we've got Man City in the cup in January, which helped us, um, you know, think something like that makes a significant difference but rather than use that that money to um enhance the the ground or the the squad or something else we're actually just using it to to pay wages and to to keep the club going are you having to dip into your own pockets now to keep the club going we will do we'll have to eventually yeah i mean 
we're okay at the moment, but you know we've got a cash flow which is only flowing one way. And so then there is, there is literally only the furlough money coming in, um, and I think that's going to be one of the big decisions. Um, I mean, even for the four clubs that are in the playoff positions in League Two, to to go and do the playoff games. You've not only got to have the testing, and that's the bit that's been publicised um, for the cost of those matches. But it isn't that. Um, it's the taking your players off furlough um, and your backroom staff, and then you've got your three weeks or so for training before the match. Then you've got the match, and then you've got to bring other people in, like doctors, and um, you know uh, you've got ground costs, and so it's going to cost an awful lot of money for clubs that have no income, that don't know when they're going to get an income. And, um, you know, unless somebody puts their hand in the pocket or they have cash reserves, and mostly two clubs what I can see don't have cash reserves. It is a, yeah. a dire situation for, for League Two in particular. Um, but, you know, that's not taking it away from the other leagues. It's, it's bad there too. I'm just thinking, though, you know, if you're the, you get the crumbs from the table, as it were, from the Premier League, and obviously being League Two clubs, you get a smaller percentage of the TV income from the Championship. If you've got an owner who isn't capable financially or willing to put their hands in their pockets at the moment, once the government furlough scheme is over, you have a business that effectively has nothing to sell and might not have anything to sell until early next year maybe even later than that and you're a very successful business person tell me how does a business which has nothing to sell and no other means of support survive well financially by the the, the goodwill and good grace of the people there that will put money into it. So whether it is the owners um, or, or whoever it is, whether it's loans, um, yeah. I mean, it isn't just the, the clubs with owners that's, that can't or don't want to put money in. It's also clubs that are community-owned, that are, are supporter-owned. And they don't have those cash reserves, those, that's yeah, access to cash. Um, because that's all we're talking about is cash. Where can you get cash from? Um, and so it's it's looking for other ways that you can. The, I mean, the problem is that the alternative to bringing money into a football club, if you can't do football, is hospitality. And stops as well. Um, now, what we're hoping is that, you because know, we've got huge rooms um, for, for hospitality, that when the government uh, allow some you know, restaurants or what have you to open, even with big spaces, that we may be able to open um, some of our rooms then, maybe. I mean, there's, there's no guarantee we will. Um, so at the moment, our, our club is just running at full blast because we're working in the community. So I'd even struggle to open the, the rooms um, for the public to pay for a meal because we're producing about a thousand meals a day, which are then going around Stoke-on-Trent um, to families um, who, who need it during this, this COVID period. So you're doing that as a football club, as a, a, an active member of your local community in Stoke? 
Yeah, because to me, I'm very keen on the community side of football. I think that football is about, A, the fans that come in through the gates. And I'm very conscious that we serve them. And, and it's a bit counterintuitive because you buy something which then serves. It's like buying a church or buying a, you know, some of my youngest daughter's doing um, religion as part of her degree. And she always refers to football as a faith-based system. That's exactly what it is, um, as Bill Shankly famously said. And, and so you, you buy something but you don't then own it and then it's not about you. It's about the people who come to the, to the club, so the supporters, the fans, but also the community around it because it is a, to me, it is a community um, facility, a community service-based organisation. And so when the football was um, suspended in March, on the Friday, on the Monday morning, I got the um, the leadership team of the football club, the Foundation Trust, which is the um, com community charity arm that most football clubs have, um, Synectics, which is our company, IT company next door, and the Hub Foundation, which is a charity that Kevin and I started a year ago, um, which we, where we've been working with kids for the last three years uh, feeding kids and doing activities during the school holidays and so I brought the four leadership teams together and said okay um, how do you want history to write this how do you want to to look back and view what we did when you're at a dinner party in two years time and somebody says what did you do during the lockdown period what do you want to say um, we can lock up we can you know, shut up shop and go and nobody's going to say anything for doing that um but as as a one they just all said no we want to we want to go and actually do what we can for the community so we've brought as many organizations together as we can we've brought you know, jcb are making uh, meals for us and there's a local catering company called Totally Delicious who can't do any work at the moment. So they've been making food for us. And as of today, we had made and delivered 41,000 meals in the last seven weeks. Wow, that is impressive. And Carol, Carol, you are, I think we need to stress this, a, a successful business person. You were not born with a silver spoon in your mouth. I think we were chatting earlier before this interview and you said you left school with zero O-levels. And along with your husband, you've built an extremely successful IT company. So a company that's a, at the cutting edge of, of modern business. And in my opening remarks for this podcast, I was critical of the people who run football at the very top level. And I'm not critical of successful business people, by the way. It just seems to me that football clubs are not appropriate vehicles for that kind of business. When you hear a fan like me talking like that, do you think I'm talking out of order? Or can you understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, I can. I mean, there's 92, well, 91 at the moment, but there's supposedly 92 clubs um, and they're all different. And I think that's part of the beauty of the of the industry, but also it's part of the frustration. 
and that comes over when you're when you're talking when we are in um meeting efl meetings you either have breakout sessions where you go into your league sessions or we have some cross league meetings and they're really good because you'll get um, some championships, some League One, some League Two clubs all together. And you really do begin to see the difference. And it is huge. I mean, particularly the difference between League One and the championship. That is the most enormous gulf between the two. Um, and what I'm prepared to take, but I mean, yeah, but it is. Whereas the difference between League Two and League One isn't as big it's not it's not a sea change in the way that it, it is um, from the league one to championship and and you know it's not for me to be critical about how any of them are run but you certainly can see the different philosophies the different um re raison d'etre of, of different clubs um, just by listening to them when when we're all together. And I came into the industry th you know, thinking, right, I first of all need to identify the the, uh, the clubs that I would like Port Vale to aspire to be like. And after about, I don't know, six months or so, I thought there isn't one. There isn't, there isn't another club that I want to be like because there isn't another club in Burslem, um, with this in the situation that we are with the history that we've got with with the needs around us and the you know the way that the fans um, have been treated in the past the way they need to be treated now we are completely different to all other 91 areas um, and, and 91 clubs so they've got to go and do it their way and we'll do it our way Mm. Uh, I'm not asking you necessarily to be critical of other clubs per se, though, but I suppose what's interesting to explore is whether you have a model of football, of a football league, albeit that we now have two major professional leagues in this country, the Premier League and the Football League, all the, you know, they are clearly linked through promotion and relegation at the moment. You have a model where clubs are run for either profit or for the self-aggrandisement of the owners who've just got loads of money and want to burnish their image, or you have a model where you say football clubs are essentially community assets that need to be cared for long-term. I'm not sure you can have a system where two coexist, because what we have at the moment is a system where the very wealthy clubs essentially dictate the wages that are paid lower down, they dictate who will be successful and who won't, and therefore who gets the television money and who doesn't. It doesn't seem a system at the moment that is is geared for clubs like yours. No, but I think it's the, the old joke, isn't it? You know, if you wanted to get to there, you don't want to start from here. Uh, and in many ways, I think this period of, of, of lockdown and, and football just stopping has been so far from anybody in football, it's so far from their comprehension. <laughs> There's people in football who have been there for, I don't know, 40, 50 years, and the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west, and it does every time and ever more shall be so. So this is when you do your pre-season. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. It's very um, rhythmic, and, and it's very unquestioned. And so people like me have come in and say, well, why do we do that? Well, because we've always done that. And, and, and I got that within Port Vale. <laughs> and I just went round saying, well, 
I, I can't see the logic for doing, doing that particular thing. Why, why do we do it? Well, we always have. Everybody does. You've got to do it like that. Um, and I was like, well, no, actually, we don't have to do it like that. We can, we can do it differently if we want to because it's our club. And as long as we follow the rules as they're stated, we can, we can run how we like, which is what we've done. So we are a lot different. Um, I, I was phoning the players and I got a text back from one of the players today and he says, I've just texted to thank you because in all the years I play football, I've never, ever had an owner text me to say thank you and have a good summer. And I just text back and says, turns out I'm different. <laughs> you know, <laughs> But that's that to me was was what I would do. Um, and and I'm not trying to be better than every, anybody else. I'm just trying to be me. And so and I want Port Vale to be what Port Vale is. I want it to be authentic to itself. Um, and for people who don't know the area of Stoke-on-Trent in which you are based, Stoke-on-Trent generally is recognised, I think, as a, a deprived part of the UK. But within that, Burslem is a, a deprived area within a deprived area, I think it's fair to say, isn't it? And, and it would be easy for people to, uh, a kind of a separate point really, but it, it would be easy for people in Stoke-on-Trent to simply say, we support Stoke City until very recently, a Premier League team. But there is something about supporting your local community club. I know Valeites would never dream of supporting Stoke City. You know, as a business model, it's not very rational to have two football clubs in the conurbation of Stoke-on-Trent. But your fans clearly see something different in your club that Stoke City wouldn't offer them, and it's very particular to their locale in in that city. Yeah, I mean Stoke on Trent is post industrial. Um, it had the pottery industry, so the area of Burslem was where Dalton, Wedgwood, all these names that you've heard heard of that now don't exist, and they literally left overnight and left tens of thousands of people out of work. The mines shut. So everywhere in Stoke, where there's a mining village, I've got this thing that where, there's, where there was a pit, there's poverty, because it was the, the whole village around it. And it was very hard for, for miners and the mining community to, to retrain and, re, and become into another, another industry with, an, with another skill. And so there's... The one bit that was constant and the one bit that was good for them was their football club. And whether that was Stoke City or whether it was Port Vale, for, for Port Vale, they've always been the underdog. And there's part of the, that's part of the culture in a way. And there's part of this, um, you know, I, I keep referring to us as we are a championship club that happens to be in League Two. But we can think like a championship club because nobody can stop us thinking like that. And so when I'm talking to John Askin, the manager, I'll keep saying to him, well, what would we do if we were in the championship now? And he'd say, well, we'll do it like this. Well, if it isn't going to cost us any money, let's do it like that. So one of the things was that we we now do some um, random searching into the home part of the, the grounds. And we got this uh, pushback from the fans saying, well, we shouldn't be search going into the, the home stands. It's only for the away stands. And my response was, is when we're in the championship, we will have to do that. And when we're in the championship, we'll be used to it. So what we don't want is to wait till we get there and then suddenly have to change and do this whole cultural shock from, from one to another because we will be used to it. 
um, we send um, a chef on the coach with the players um, to do their, their meals coming back. And one of the players said to me, yeah, League Two clubs don't do this. I said, well, ours does, you know, because it's important to, to me that we look after you. And it's, that's now become a thing that if the chef, Scott, who goes, if he can't go, we will go and find another chef to go because that's essential now to the way that we look after our players. It's the way that we do things. You are subsidising Port Vale, aren't you, from your successful IT company, or you're going to have to very soon. Yeah. No, I am. No, we are doing. And because when we got there, there wasn't anything really there structurally. There wasn't um, a, a management system, a leadership system that didn't exist. And so I got the uh, board from from our IT company and said, right, <laughs> how do you fancy running a football club at the same time? And we've all worked together for years, so we know each other. And it's actually really good. It's it's kept everybody fresh because you've really had to go and, um, you know, with, with Synectics, we just were doing what we always did. We were just doing more um, of it as we grew. Whereas taking on Vale has really made us look at the way that we work um, and we've had to develop as people um, to go and do two, you know, which are completely different cultures. And, and it's had... Well, it's really fascinating in because the other thing I was told is that football's different. Oh, yeah, football's different. You know, you can't run it like your business, completely different. And and I thought, yeah, you can. Of course you can, because it's a it's a an entertainment, hospitality, people-based system. That's what it is. And as long as you don't, you know, when your owners come in with the money and the sort of the vanity project, it it can become that you know, the promotion is the only thing. So we've got to just throw money at it, and we've got to throw money at players because there's this myth that if you know if you've got a player and you pay him a grand more a week, he will play better. He won't. He'll play to his level of skill, and it's you know, and it's how much do you pay? to realistically get that that level of skill from that player. Um, so I don't believe in throwing money at players. I believe in a you know a fair salary for them. And and so we've I also believe that um, if you your management is good and the the team around them, they will get more out of those players um, than if you just have a manager that spends a lot of money and throws players in. So if you look at ours, um, when we had the previous manager, he wasn't getting, for whatever reason, the best out of some of our players. And you would have thought that you'd have to get rid of them and start again. But no, when John Askey went in, he started training differently with them, um, working individually. And there's now players that I wouldn't dream of getting rid of. They are, you know, the stars of our team. Whereas, you know, two years ago, you'd have... They wondered why on earth they were there. We wondered why they were there. And yet now they're the first ones that, they, that you want to sign up and then would sign up. So it's it's how you treat them. It's how you treat the players, how you treat the team and how you treat success. So we won't have success at any price. I'm not going to, you know, we will not have the biggest budget in the league. In fact, if we had the biggest budget at the league, I would be really worried because we wouldn't be being true to our values um, because that is about getting more 
out of less. Two quick questions, Carol, before we finish. I was chatting a few days ago to the chief executive of uh, a football club, a division or two higher than you are. I can't say who they are. This chief executive said that if there is no football with a live audience until 2021, they fear for the future of their club. Now, I can tell that you're in it for the long haul with Port Vale. Honestly, though, if we don't have live football, football in front of a live audience this side of the new year, how many other league clubs do you think will survive? I think there'll be a lot that don't. Um, I think it is that that serious. And that, again, was one of the reasons why when I sat and listened to the other chairman, the other CEOs on the call on Friday, um, and I wanted them all to play so that I could have my nine games and you know, take my rightful place in the league this season. Um, and as I listened to them, I just felt I can't do it. I just can't do it to them because even without playing those nine games, their future is precarious. And because with this virus, we've no idea. Ultimately, the virus will dictate and whether that you know whether we get live audience back in September or um, after Christmas or you know a year's time, it's it really um, we've got to batten down the hatches and we've got to you know so we haven't bought we're about to um, go for a ticketing system we desperately need a new one and we took a decision that we wouldn't. Um, go for one now and you thought well hang on you put all this time you could install it but we don't know where we're going to be at the end of this covid period and we don't know where the ticketing company is going to be either and so you really have to to just hold fire and wait and only spend what you need to spend final question do you think the premier league has a moral obligation to help clubs like yours survive to sustain and support the football family i think that i think that we have to decide whether we're going to be 92 of one or one of 92 um and if we're going to be one of 92 if we're going to be you know all together then we have to look at a, a professional football in the uk as a totality or in england as a totality and and how you know it, and if you view it like a family you know it's it's the the elder ones help the younger ones you know the the ones that have got help the ones that haven't and so whether it's a moral obligation i don't know i think it's a practical obligation or as a practical consideration that um where we need it there should be help and there's, there's a recognition that there should be help because there is already money that goes you know to the lower so I think we're talking about the amounts and the proportions rather than the concept. Carol, lovely to speak to you. Really appreciate your time and good luck to Port Vale going forward. I haven't always said that as a football fan, uh, but I really do wish you all the best and I hope your vision of Port Vale is successful. It's great to hear about that stuff that you're doing in the community as well. I should say, if you've enjoyed listening to this episode of When Sky Invented Football, you can follow me on Twitter at Goldberg Radio. You can also email me 
Goldberg Radio at gmail.com. Carol Shanahan is on Twitter as well. I recommend that you follow her as well. If you've enjoyed this, though, please do spread the word and hit that subscribe button. We'll see you again next week. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Thanks, Carol. Thank you.